If you can go ahead and find Matthew 24 in your Bibles. I know we are in Daniel. I will explain all of why we're here uh, in just a minute after we finish reading the text together. But we'll be in Matthew 24, and we won't quite get through all of the chapter, but we'll try to get most of it. Um, And so I'm just going to go ahead and read, uh, starting in verse 1, Matthew 24. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, Do you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us then, what will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray? For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must all take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and they will put you to death, and then you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or in a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as it has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never again will be. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, he is the Christ, and there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead many astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will also gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the power of the heavens will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So this is as far as we're going to get, I think, this evening uh, in Matthew 24. Um, I wanted to put all of it in front of you uh, at the the start so that we uh, at least have read it all. We have at least a broader context. And I'll try to 
fill in some of the pieces of, let's say, what Matthew's been talking about in his gospel thus far. Um, you might have noticed some of the language that we have, as you were reading, that is a reference to Daniel. Um, there's, there's two instances that are uh, of particular notice, and that's why we're, we're here in Matthew 24. Uh, one of the things we talk about is a principle of interpreting scripture. Some of you might remember this from the hermeneutics class, is uh, scripture interprets scripture. So when you read one scripture, uh, if you find another scripture that talks about the same event, uh, possibly in a more clear light, that later scripture or other scripture could help you to understand the event. And this is one example of such a thing. Uh, Daniel is predicting by prophecy things in his book. We've been looking at those last couple of weeks. There's lots of confusion. There's beasts. There's horns. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And he says some interesting things. Uh, one of the things he talks about in Daniel 7 is that you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And this is when he goes to the Ancient of Days and receives uh, honor and dominion and a kingdom. Uh, and that's referenced here by Jesus. He says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh, and also, uh, in Daniel 9, uh, we read just this last week, that there, when you see the abomination of desolation uh, in the temple, uh, and then later in Daniel both 11 and Daniel 12, you see that same, same language used, the abomination of desolation. And here, Jesus quotes that, and actually, in case you miss his quote, he actually says, this is verse 15, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and then he gives his instructions from there. So he, Jesus is anchoring it. This is the thing that the prophet Daniel predicted. And so what is that? And so because Jesus is helping us to understand Daniel, we would be foolish not to at least learn from his feet. He's, he's the uh, final prophet of, of God. He's the, he's the great teacher. Uh, so we can learn a lot from him. Uh, and, and so I think, I think that we ought to. Um, just a few quick notes. One, uh, this section of teaching might be a little longer than usually we try to shoot for like 25 minutes. Uh, we might be closer to 35 minutes tonight just because a lot of verses, um, but the discussion and hopefully the instruction will be worth it. It's a lot of text to get through and I'm sure you understand uh, just based on reading this text. If you've ever read it before, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. So we're going to try to do our best to work through it. Um, as we've been moving through the book of Daniel, we've been talking about uh, Daniel as a field guide for exiles, a field guide for those who are in exile and outside of the promised land. Um, this, this text, uh, we're going to be talking about letting the reader understand. And that comes straight from the quote from Jesus. Uh, we, the reader, uh, we are not the, the reader who Jesus is referring to or who uh, Matthew is referring to there because we're not the direct audience. But we are a reader of Matthew's gospel. And so uh, if we want to read Matthew's gospel as Matthew intended his gospel to be read, we have to understand what his audience's readers would have understood. In, in the world of hermeneutics, this is called the, being the model reader or the ideal reader. So you want to be the person who understands all the cultural and contextual references. A great example of this would be uh, if you live in the United States and you ever go to watch a comedy show. Uh, if you're not a model citizen, a model here of good comedy in America, you won't get anything. There's lots of euphemisms, lots of cultural language, lots of contemporary things that people are referencing. Let's say you're 100 years later and you're listening to a comedian. A lot of stuff won't make sense. It's because you're just removed from the audience, removed from the context. And so uh, we need to be in that context, or at least do as much as we can to put ourselves in that context so we can understand um, what is going on. So uh, I want to highlight maybe the stress of this text first, and then we will break it down and try to understand it. So at the very end of the text that I read, verse 34 and 35, I think most of us uh, in, in the evangelical world uh, skip over this part of the text, and we just kind of let it wash over us. Um, Jesus says this in verse 34. He says, Truly I say to you, 
this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Jesus, let's say, stakes his, his claims of truth. He states his authority, stakes it on this prophecy being true. Uh, we should feel the weight of that because I think because we live so far downstream of Christian tradition and Christian history, we often are tempted to step in for Jesus and make excuses for him or try to uh, make him say things that are, not, are less uh, offensive or less, uh, less in, the, in the face. Uh, there's three real possibilities in this text. Uh, the liberal scholars have concluded that Jesus meant what he said. He meant this generation, uh, and he was wrong. He was a false prophet. He didn't know what he was talking about. That's why he died. That's why, uh, that's why he didn't resurrect, all these things, right? Jesus said it. It didn't come true. None of these things took place in that generation, so he was false. Uh, the other thing we could say, is, we could conclude that uh, all the things he said are going to come true, but they haven't quite happened yet. So this generation is not a time frame reference. It's, it's a reference to this evil generation or this wicked generation, which will be around until he returns again some sometime in the future, that the events that he has described here have not yet taken place. That's one option. Uh, the third option that we could go with is that Jesus, what he said was these things will all take place in this generation. We just say, these things all did take place, and it was within that generation. And then the question is, okay, well, how do we make sense of a lot of the things that he's talking about taking place, right? There's a lot of stuff that he says go on, and uh, we need to do our best to try to understand that. So uh, with that being said, let's say feeling the weight of that text, is Jesus' authority or his, uh, his trustworthiness at stake? Uh, let's look at this text and see what is he, what is he talking about. So we're going to be looking, working through some of this uh, stuff we've been working through in prophecy so far. This is Jesus' prophecy that is very much in line with what Daniel is talking about. So at the beginning of the chapter, uh, there's something that has just recently happened. And if you just glance back a few verses into chapter 23, you'll notice that. Jesus walks past Jerusalem. He laments over Jerusalem. And he essentially says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have loved to save you, but you rejected me. And then he says, uh, verse 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 38, right before he says that, right before he says, you will not see me come again, so you say, blessed is he, he says this. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. So Jesus has just lamented over Jerusalem, and then he turns around and he goes to Jerusalem's temple uh, with his disciples, and his disciples point out the temple. They say, pretty impressive, right? And he says, <laughs> the temple will be destroyed. Not one stone left upon another. Uh, the temple is worthless. It is, it is gone. It is, it is over. And then his disciples don't really ask any follow-up questions. And then later, this is a, a quick glance to verse 3. The time is very short in between these. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've never been to Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives sits over the city of Jerusalem. So if you're on the Mount of Olives, you are overlooking the city, overlooking the temple. So you'd be sitting up there looking down at Jerusalem, looking down at the temple. And then as they're sitting there, the disciples come up to him and they ask him a couple of questions. Namely, you'll see those in verse 3. They say, tell us, what will be, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they ask him questions. What will, essentially, when will this temple destruction take place? Now, we can uh, see a lot of things here. One of the things that I think we are often tempted to do at this point is, is get confused because there's a lot of language going on here. Uh, they say, uh, tell us when will these things be? And some people say there's multiple questions. When will these things be? 
And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So that there's multiple iterations of questions that are being asked. I conclude, and I can uh, explain this to you if you want. I'm not going to be able to dive into it too much right now. Jesus is only asking one question, and he's asking one question that he then answers, uh, giving multiple signs of these things happening. Now, to prove that, uh, if you want to check this, you can go to Mark 13, where the exact same question is asked. And Jesus, uh, I believe it's Mark 13. Let me see if I can find you the verse here. Uh, so if you, want to, if you want to flip over there, I just want to point you to the same question. Uh, Mark 13 is a parallel passage. Just what that means is it's talking about the same events from a different angle. It's Mark 13, verse 4. And this is the question that Mark records. He says, the, this is what he says the disciples say, tell us, when will these things be? Same question Matthew asks. And then he says, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Okay. A little bit more clear in Mark that it's not multiple different questions referring to different events. It's one question talking about one event. Mark actually repeats the question. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? Right? Mark is a little bit more clear. That's helpful for helping us navigate Matthew because Matthew uh, is a little bit confusing admittedly, but Mark helps us. So one question. And the question is essentially this. When will the temple be destroyed? Now, if you are standing where we're at in history, you don't really care about the temple or its destruction. The reason is, one, you're not a Jewish person, and two, you never saw the second temple. Now, the second temple is a historical monument. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world in the, in the first century. Just to give you a, a, a sense of what the temple was like, uh, there's a bunch of uh, resources you can look at to see the temple. But the Herodian temple, which was built by Herod, who's the king of the Jews at that time, was was a hallmark of the Jewish culture. It's worth comment that the overall appearance of the walls were about the height of a 20-story building. Think about how tall that is in the ancient world. They built with stones a 20-story tall structure. And these aren't just like bricks that you would see like put up in a house. The Herodian stones are famous. They're uh, tons of weight each, each of them being a solid chunk of stone. But what's interesting, if you just want to get a sense of how much it took to build this temple, before the work on the temple began, Herod first spent eight years stockpiling materials for its construction. And then, with a workforce of over 10,000 men, he began the instruction of the temple, including a contingent of 1,500 especially trained priests, who were the only ones permitted to work on the innermost and holiest parts of the temple. Building the, the building of the temple continued for a further 20 years, even though the temple was complete and sufficiently structured within three years of it being structured. So Herod builds this monument of a temple, and he essentially continues to furnish it, upgrade it, add on to it for essentially his entire reign. This is, this is the pride of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is walking past the temple. The disciples point it out to him, and they say, look at this impressive structure. And Jesus says, the temple is gone, and it will be destroyed. Now, that would be like telling someone 20 years before, or sorry, uh, in the 1970s, uh, look at the two towers. Those things will be destroyed September 2001. They're impressive, cool, they'll be gone. Don't put your trust in them. It's the pride of the, the economy, right? The pride of the, the world. That is a pretty crazy prediction, right? There's no, there's no context for that. There's no, there's no background for that. But Jesus says this. Now the question is, why? Why is Jesus so, so uh, up in arms about the temple? Well, if you, read, uh, if you read Matthew's gospel, 
Jesus has been building this motif, and this is clear in all the synoptics, that he is the temple, right? The temple is not the building. Jesus is the temple, and he'll develop, the writers of the New Testament will develop the theme that the church is the temple, right? The church, we are his body. We are the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Uh, our body is a temple. And so the, the New Testament authors develop this idea as well, but it starts with Jesus. He says he's the temple. And so, well, if he's the temple, then there's a competing temple of a, of a rival system that engages in sacrifice and says these are true sacrifices. Well, it would be fitting for that temple to be destroyed because it's, it's deceiving people. It's leading them astray. So it's a, it's a competing or a rival system that's in place. So Jesus is essentially asserting himself up and against the Jewish temple. And if you're a, if you're a Messiah, or if you're a follower of the Messiah, this is probably the last thing you're going to expect him to say because he's the Jewish savior. So he's supposed to you know, be very Jewish, be very into the sacrificial system. So this is strange for the disciples to hear. And then uh, when they ask him this question, Jesus gives uh, an astounding set of answers, um, each of which uh, we need to appreciate in their historical context. So, Firstly, let's look at verse 4, and this, uh, I'm just going to read verse 4 through verse 8, and we'll talk about it. So first, Jesus answered them, says, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must all take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, if you read that and you think about how Americans look at the end of the, the end of the age, the end of the world, we tend to associate natural disasters, earthquakes, hurricanes, famines with some concoction of maybe it's the time, right? This is, this is how we tend to think of things. So we, uh, and, and this is a weird thing for us to do because we live in an age where anyone could get information from any part of the world at any point in time, right? If something happens, over in Africa, in the middle of a village somewhere, some, some earthquake, we'll hear about it here in the United States. Well, before the internet and before radio and before telephone communication, information didn't travel like that. Imagine you're in the first century. How are you hearing about multiple kinds of famines, wars, rumors of wars, and political uprising? It's all gotta be happening within basically your city and your town. If it's not happening within your area, you're not gonna hear about it, right? Until like, let's say several weeks or months later. But let's say, all of this stuff takes place in a small part of the world where information doesn't travel in a broad circumference. So all these things aren't happening globally, but all these things are happening localized as a particular kind of uptick in events. Let's say, for example, you took a, a, a small city like New York, and New York experiences famines, earthquakes, upheavals, political uprisings, and all kinds of wars and rumors of wars, all within a couple months of one another, all in the same location. Well, that would be significant. That's very different than taking it onto a global scale and saying, well, there's a famine over here and there's an earthquake over there and we're gonna try to piece these things together, right? The other reason this prediction is impressive is because the, the disciples live in an age under the Roman Empire, what's called the Pax Romana. It's a fancy way of saying Rome is under total peace. So Caesar Augustus, who we were introduced to in the beginning of Luke's gospel, he tells us about Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus has done something incredible. He's conquered basically all of the known world, put it under Roman rule, and he's done something really impressive, which he's been able to hold peace, meaning there's no rebellious empires, there's no dissenting armies, there's no one really up against Rome fighting them. If you live in an age in history where there's no wars really, there's no rumors of wars, to hear about a time in the future where that'd be possible, that would be to say, 
oh, the Roman government is no longer in charge, or the Roman government is the one initiating the wars against us. So if that's happening, this is strange, right? Because for the last 200 years for the Jewish people, there's been no wars. There's been no rumors of wars. The Middle East has been a relatively calm place. It doesn't mean it's a perfect place, but this is not like the Middle East is today where there's territorial scuffles and every, every time one major superpower moves out, another superpower moves in. It is not like that, right? There are wars all the time in the Middle East now, but in the first century, there was no war in the Middle East. It was relatively peaceful and calm. Now, that was because of Roman tyranny that it was accomplished, but nevertheless, it was relatively peaceful. So Jesus says in the face of essentially a historical context that's totally peaceful with a temple that's perfectly standing, this temple is going to be destroyed and there's no longer going to be peace in this area. Be on the lookout. This is one of the signs that these things are going to happen. And then he says, though, that the end is not yet. These are verse 8. Verse eight. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9. Then they will be delivered up to tribulation and you will be put to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise to lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, if you read the book of Acts, it details the account of the early church under persecution going forth and sharing the gospel. Jesus is saying here, you're going to be delivered up to kingdoms under tribulation. You're going to be delivered up uh, by hatred. You're going to be turned over. You're going to be persecuted. But don't fail, don't lose heart, because the one who endures to the end will be saved. But in this persecution time, the love of many will grow cold, people will fall away. This is describing the early church under persecution, under the persecution of the oppressing Roman armies, under the oppressing Jewish leadership. Just read the book of Acts. This is like Paul's always in prison, always being beaten. This is what this is talking about, right? And now you might say, well, that could be true, except for verse 14, which says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come, right? This, this could not possibly have been accomplished in the book of Acts. Hold that thought. I'm aware that many of you uh, women are doing a study in Romans. So let's turn to Romans chapter 1. And let's see what Paul uses to describe the advancement of the gospel. I'm going to look at verse 8 of Romans chapter 1. Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for you all, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now hold on, Paul. You're writing in the first century. You haven't explored the known world. You haven't seen all the known world. You know the gospel hasn't gone out to the whole world. So how can you say the faith of the church in Rome is proclaimed throughout the whole world? Except that Paul does seem to describe the proclamation of the Romans' faith throughout the whole world. One more text to look at, uh, Colossians, chapter 1, verse 6. This one's a little bit more striking. Colossians, chapter 1, verse 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 5 because it starts in the middle of a sentence. He says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul says, Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, the gospel is bearing fruit among you and in the whole world. 
Now go back to Matthew 24, and you can appreciate more so the sense of what Jesus is getting at. Not that every single person in the world, every single individual will hear the gospel and then the end will come. He's talking about the gospel expanding through the known world, through the proclamation of the gospel in the early church, through the mission of the church in Acts. The book of Acts closes essentially with Paul in prison in his final prison stay. And so Paul's essentially reached all of what he's going to refer to later as the known world in these letters. And so this is describing the, the early church's advancement. And then Jesus gets to where we get to in the book of Daniel. And he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, I'm going to skip that parentheses, verse 16, then let all those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, before you ask the question, well, what on earth is the abomination of desolation? What, what is it like? Scripture interprets scripture, right? Go to Luke chapter 21. The reason I say Luke, we've been studying Luke together for a while on Sundays. Luke is the Gentile equivalent of the Synoptic Gospels, meaning Luke often explains things that a, a Jewish person would not have understood naturally. Or sorry, a Gentile would not have understood. Matthew assumes a Jewish audience, and he assumes that his audience has read the Old Testament, is familiar with its language. Luke does not assume that. And so let's see if Luke helps clarify for us what's going on. Matthew, or sorry, this is Luke 21. And I'm going to look at verse 20 of Luke 21. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I'm going to pause there. If you were to read the rest of that paragraph in Luke, and you were to go back to Matthew 24 and read the rest of its paragraph, the whole section is essentially the same, almost verbatim, except for that initial statement. Matthew says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Luke says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Luke is helping you as a Gentile understand what Matthew was talking about. Because if you're a Gentile, you probably haven't read Daniel, so you don't know what the abomination of desolation is. The abomination of desolation, according to Luke, is Jerusalem being surrounded by armies and thus later put to siege for its destruction. The other thing that proves this, or let's say supports this, would be in the text, in that paragraph, I'm just going to read from Matthew in verse 17. He says, let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what's in his house, verse 18, and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak, verse 19, and alas for women who are pregnant in those days, who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Jesus is giving instruction for when you see the abomination of desolation, how to escape it. So this cannot be talking about his final coming in judgment on the earth because that is a judgment that no one will escape. And yet, when talking about this judgment, he says, if you are not in Jerusalem and you flee to the mountains, you can get away. That's kind of bad advice if, if there's no way to escape the final judgment. But Jesus is saying, if you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you can flee to the mountains. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't grab your coat. Flee. Get outside. Now, you might be saying, well, if you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, why would you stay in Jerusalem? Why wouldn't you flee? And that's because Jerusalem is a fortress. We talked about this with the temple and its siege weapons. Jerusalem is the place to go. This is like taking, for, taking fortitude in Helm's Deep when the, when the Urukai army is surrounding the people of the fellowship, right? Helm's Deep is the place to go. Unless you know that Helm's Deep is not the place to go because someone you trusted told you don't go there. Flee, don't go to Helm's Deep, right? This, would be, this is kind of what Jesus is saying. Don't go to the safe place. Flee because the safe place is not so safe because God is coming in judgment there. So he tells his people to flee. 
Now, this is, let's say, the interpretation that Luke provides for us of the abomination of desolation. And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit uh, through the end of that uh, section. Uh, I, I read, I guess, most of it. He talks about uh, the days of that tribulation being cut short. Uh, if it would not be cut short, then the elect would not be saved. Verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So Jesus, verse 25, says, see, I have told you beforehand. Now, if you were to go to the historical record and you were to look at the early church, what's interesting about the siege of Jerusalem, which is the most well-attested thing that happened in the ancient world in 70 AD, what's interesting about the siege of Jerusalem is the Christians and the Jewish Christians survived the siege. Why'd they survive the siege? Because they didn't go to Jerusalem. Everyone else took shelter in Jerusalem and was destroyed, almost everyone, in Jerusalem. And the Christians fled. They got out of town. Why? Because Jesus told them not to stay in Jerusalem. This is the thing that takes the early church from a Jewish sect into essentially its own independent religion. Because Jerusalem is destroyed, the Jewish temple is destroyed, Jewish worship is undone, and now the Christians essentially blossom as their own independent movement away from the shroud of Judaism. So Jesus tells his disciples or his followers, hey, by the way, see, I have told you beforehand. Listen to what I'm saying. Don't go to Jerusalem when you see these things take place. And then he's telling them, hey, there's going to be false Christ, false messiahs. This makes sense, right? If in a, if a time like this, people would come and say, I'm the Messiah, and they'd lead, you know, this kind of, the kind of stuff happens when things are going bad. In verse 26, he's telling them, once again, don't, don't do that kind of thing. Don't, don't go into the wilderness. Don't go to the inner rooms. Don't believe it. Why? Verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. He's going to say it's going to be an undeniable event. You're going to see it. You're going to recognize it. Everyone will understand what's going on. No one will be able to deny it. Just like if lightning in the dark sky sh sh shines right across the sky, no one will say it didn't happen because everyone will have seen it. This is the kind of thing he's talking about. In verse 29 then, we get into the other reference from the book of Daniel that's relevant in Matthew. Good night, Calvin. <laughs> and this is in verse, uh, I'll start reading in verse 29. Uh, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, so right, we're talking about the siege of Jerusalem, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I'm going to pause there. This is surely going to come in the future, because the sign of the Son of Man has not been seen in heaven, right? What is this talking about? The sun is still shining. The sun is not darkened. The moon has not lost its light. Stars haven't fallen from heaven. What are we talking about? Why, how could this possibly have taken place in this generation? Well, we have to be an ideal reader. And what that means is we need to understand references that Matthew is making in his gospel to Old Testament texts. Now, I just want to point you to a couple of these texts that would help us to understand, let's say, the background and context for these things. Uh, the first one I want to point to you is Isaiah. And it's Isaiah 13. This is the Old Testament in the prophets. Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 10. Now, just to give you context for Isaiah 13 before we read verse 10. 
verse 1 of Isaiah 13 says, it's the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Okay, so it's about Babylon. Isaiah saw it. And here is the, the prediction. Verse 10. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened as it's rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp and the arrogant and I will lay low the pompous and the pride of the ruthless. You've heard that language before, right? We just read it in Matthew 24. The stars will fall from heaven. The sun will not give its light. The moon will not give its light. This is kind of the same language Jesus uses. Okay, what's the context in Isaiah? What, what's he talking about here? Well, the context in Isaiah, first off, is a destruction oracle on Babylon. But secondly, if you go to verse 17, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and who do not lay light in gold. Now pause. We have seen prophecies in Daniel, predictions in Daniel, where Daniel says, hey, after Babylon, Medes and the Persians are going to come. They're going to destroy Babylon. They're going to dethrone him. We saw in Daniel how that took place, right? How do the Medes do it? They come, they destroy Belshazzar, who's, who's the king at the time. And then they just take over. Now you think about the language that was just used in Isaiah. The sun will lose its light. The stars will fall from heaven. And then you think about how this plays out, let's say, on the stage of world history. And the prophecy of Isaiah that the Medes are going to overtake the Babylonians is not that the sun will lose its light and there will be asteroids from heaven coming down to destroy Babylon. It's just a cosmic judgment on the people of Babylon seen from heaven as opposed to seen from earth. So it's an it's a astrological description of one earthly power being judged and destroyed. The city of Babylon is sacked by the Medes and the Persians, and thus the Medes and the Persians take over. And the language that's used in Isaiah is the stars will fall from heaven, the moon will not give its light, the sun will, not, the sun will be darkened. So here's one context in the Old Testament where this takes place. The other context where you see the same language being used uh, is in, I believe it's Ezekiel. Yeah, if you'll turn with me to Ezekiel 32, he's the other prophet that uses this kind of language. And I'll read to you the context of Ezekiel 32. It's just verses 1 and 2. The vision of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel. Verse 2, Son of man, raise a lament over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, and then the, the prophecy continues. But I want to hone into a specific part, specifically verse 7 and verse 8, and listen to the language. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens, I will make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. And the bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you, and I will put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Hear that language? That astrological language, right? Does this mean the sun is going to fall from heaven, or What's this talking about? This is a prophetic description of a judgment of God on Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, Ezekiel is talking about this. So this is happening in the Old Testament. The historical event that's, that's being talked about is not really recorded much in Scripture, but it's known, uh, if you're a history buff, as the Battle of Carchemish. And this takes place where Pharaoh is destroyed at the Battle of Carchemish, and Babylon is the place that destroys Pharaoh. Babylon goes into and opposes the Egyptians. Pharaoh opposes the king of Babylon. Pharaoh gets defeated by the king of Babylon. Egypt becomes a vassal state to Babylon. And then Babylon takes over and it's a military conquest. Now we've seen this in the book of Daniel as well, where the author of Daniel is telling us, hey, remember Jerusalem was sacked by Babylon? God gave 
Jerusalem into the hands of the Babylonians. He's telling us from a cosmic standpoint what's happening, even though on the, on the scheme of world history, it looks like Babylon just beat Israel. Here, same thing. It looks like Egypt just lost to Babylon. Babylon stronger, Egypt lost. Ezekiel says, no, e Egypt was given over by God to Babylon in a cosmic destruction on the city. Okay, with all that background in mind, turn your eye once again to the language Matthew uses in Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the stars falling from heaven and the sun not giving its light in verse 29 and 30. And you get a sense of the context of what's going on. The context is a destruction on Jerusalem by an earthly power, not some cosmic heavenly comets raining down kind of destruction. It's the context of the Old Testament that helps us to understand this language, you see? So what's Jesus say? He says the, the stars will be dark, or the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. What are we to conclude? Not comets coming down, we're to conclude this is God's doing when it happens. When you see Jerusalem destroyed, this is God's doing. God is the one who's in control. Historically, how this plays out in Jerusalem is in 70 AD, Rome surrounds Jerusalem, seizes the city, sacks the city, destroys the temple, takes its stone off stone. And if you go to the Middle East today, you will see this temple of Jerusalem in that same condition. It's never been rebuilt. And that, it really starts the diaspora of the Jews all over the world. They end up in Germany, they end up in Poland, they end up all over the known world because they've been scattered from the holy city. It starts with Rome in 70 AD when they sack the Jewish city. And now the last piece that is, I think, important for this text and important for Daniel, certainly, for helping us to understand it. And this is Jesus, verse 30. He says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming with angels in a loud trumpet call, or sorry, and coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. Now, where does this come from in Daniel? You might remember Daniel 7, there's this Ancient of Days, and there's one like a Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days to receive an authority and a kingdom and dominion. Do you remember that language from Daniel 7? If not, turn there, check me. Daniel 7, it's verse 13 and 14. What's happening? The coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, it's not Jesus coming down from heaven onto Jerusalem to judge Jerusalem. It's actually Jesus going from earth to heaven to the Ancient of Days. In Daniel, it says he is coming on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom and dominion and authority. And here we often read, oh, he's coming on the clouds of heaven. That means he's coming from heaven down to earth to judge Jerusalem. It's not what that's talking about. Jesus is talking about him being king, him receiving his throne, receiving his authority. And he uses the language of Daniel to make that clear. He will be coming on the clouds of heaven. And what does it say? With power and with great glory. How does he have power and great glory? Well, he was given it by the ancient of days, a kingdom which will be an everlasting kingdom and a dominion which will be an everlasting dominion that all nations, tribes, and tongues should serve him. That's what Daniel says. So he's given that. And so, well, what does that have to do with Jerusalem, 70 AD? What, what, how do these things fit together? If Jesus is given authority, when the authority to destroy Jerusalem goes out, when the cosmic judgment on Jerusalem happens, who is the one behind that judgment? Where does the power come from? Well, it comes from Jesus commissioning that authority to happen. It used to be the Ancient of Days who would do that kind of thing, but he's given the authority to one like the Son of Man. 
And now the one like the Son of Man comes to judge Jerusalem. And thus, Jesus says, when Jerusalem is destroyed, he uses that cosmic language, verse 29. When Jerusalem is destroyed, you will see the, the, the fingerprint or the, the verified truth that the Son of Man is indeed coming on the clouds of heaven. He is in power. He is in glory. Why would that be the case? Well, Jesus doesn't institute a new temple worship system when he ascends on high. He institutes his church. And when he institutes his church, the church and the apostles, they go throughout Acts, they go, but they go largely under the guise of Jewish opposition and Roman opposition. So what what promise does the early church have that Jesus has their back from heaven? Well, Jesus says, essentially, the temple is going to be destroyed. The old sacrificial system will be done away with, and no one will be able to deny that it's done away with. It will be completely destroyed. And in the wake of the temple's destruction, well, now the church is going to thrive because everyone will know that the temple is not a place to go and do sacrifices because there will be no more sacrifices to do. The temple will be taken one off another. So Jesus is essentially saying, my confirmed authority will be seen when Jerusalem is destroyed. This is his, his prophecy. Okay? And then this, this last text is, is pretty important. Verse 31 And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now you might be thinking, obviously, this has not happened yet, right? Because how can we say that the elect have been gathered from the four winds? Again, this is the book of Acts being fulfilled. Now your translation says angels. If you're a a student of scripture, you'll know that 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 is more of a title than it is a heavenly being, right? What is an angel? An angel is a messenger. You've probably heard that before. Who are the messengers of Christ who go to the four winds of the world to gather his people to himself? Who does Jesus commission out to do that thing? Remember Matthew 28, where Jesus says, Go therefore into all the earth and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Who is he sending to do that? It's his apostles, his disciples. He sends them to all the world, or another way of saying that, to the four winds. He's sending them out everywhere, to go and gather his people unto himself. This is clear in the book of Acts that they go to all the world to share the gospel, right? We we looked at those texts with Paul. And so Matthew 24 and and subsequently Daniel 7 and Daniel 9, 11, and 12, as we'll see in the coming weeks, these are texts that describe the events and happenings in the first century Jerusalem, which culminate with Jesus' crucifixion, his ascension, and the subsequent spread of his gospel through the work of his apostles. This is the climactic moment in human history. And this is what Jesus is prophesying. This is what he's talking about. And then he says, he says, in case you missed it, right? And you're tempted to give him a pardon on these things. Verse 34, we read this at the beginning. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my words will not pass away. So Jesus seals his prophecy, seals what he says. And he then essentially says, this is going to happen. And now the question of the historical record is, well, does it happen? Does history play out this way? And history tells us that, in fact, it does. Jesus is crucified in a little bit. He ascends on high. The early church spreads. And Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. All just how Jesus said it would happen. Now, there's one more text that's relevant. It's the last one we'll look at. And this is, let's say, the timing of the coming of the Son of Man. When does Jesus say that's going to happen? It's another near time in reference, which I think is relevant for us to look at. And it's just two chapters away. So if you go to Matthew 26, this is the the last, let's say, relevant text to look at here. Matthew 26 and verse 64. 
The context is Jesus is on trial before the high priest. He's on trial before Caiaphas. And Caiaphas essentially makes him swear to speak. Jesus remains silent. This is verse 63. But Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to Caiaphas. Why would Jesus say that to Caiaphas? Unless this is going to take place within Caiaphas's seeing. This has to happen within Caiaphas's lifetime if this is to take place. Well, the truth of the matter is it happens when Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and ascended on high. This is when these things take place. But I think what's, what's interpretively helpful for us is how it, how it says there, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. This helps us to inform when Jesus is saying, when Jerusalem is destroyed, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. What is he talking about? He's, from now on, the Son of Man reigns. He's coming on the clouds of heaven. He's always there ever since he's received his dominion. He's always, he's always there. So Jesus even, let's say, in his crucifixion, his last thing that he says right before he's crucified is this. And if you think, well, Jesus isn't making a claim to deity there, look at what Caiaphas does. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes as he and he says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What then is your judgment? Caiaphas knows what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm the ancient of days. I am God and I'm going to go to my kingdom. And Caiaphas says, that's blasphemy. Kill him. And this is, the, this is the thing. Jesus, if you're ever saying, how does how Jesus get crucified? He self-incriminates. He says exactly who he is. Caiaphas doesn't believe him. Caiaphas goes and crucifies him. Caiaphas turns him over. Jesus, let's say, to, to sum this all up, Jesus helps us to understand what's going on in Daniel with the Son of Man. When does that happen? He also helps us to understand in Daniel, what does the abomination of desolation have to do with things, right? When does that happen? That helps us, I think, understand how do we fit all these loose pieces together that Daniel is prophesying hundreds of years into the future, that we're still not sure exactly how they shake out, right? Because Daniel's prophecies are long, long into the future. How does Jesus help us to understand them? He, he actually is the fulfillment of these things, as it turns out. So that being said, uh, may just close this in a word of prayer, and then we can move into some hopefully good discussion. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, your scriptures, which are uh, endlessly wonderful. They're insightful. Uh, they're challenging. And Lord, we submit to you in all things, holding Scripture as our ultimate authority, and uh, we are certainly underneath it. We pray that you would speak to us through your word, and that you'd be pleased to have your way with us. We pray this in your name. Amen.